0: Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number three, Exodus chapters two and three. Well, Last week the stage was set for us and the actors were all introduced. And we were given the condition of the Israelites in Egypt as oppressed, slave laborers and why they were in that condition. And it was because the newest king of Egypt didn't honor Joseph's memory or promises. And further, we learned that this new king of Egypt was an Egyptian and not part of the line of now defeated Semite kings that had ruled beginning a short time before Joseph came to Egypt and for about hundred and fifty years after he had arrived. And this new pharaoh of Egypt was quite concerned naturally that foreigners, meaning those, anybody, of non-Egyptian heritage would never again have an opportunity to rule over Egypt and cause such great humiliation. And as Egyptians were of the line of Ham, as opposed to Hebrews who were of the line of Shem, they were very visible and obvious racial differences between these two groups. And the evidence is that while a few Hebrews assimilated into everyday traditional Egyptian culture, the bulk of them hung on to and further developed a somewhat different looking Israelite culture. Now, what with the the, the recent bitter taste of subjugation that these natural-born Egyptians suffered at the hand of these Semite kings, the prosperity that these Hebrews had enjoyed, and the desire of these Egyptian rulers to put Egypt back onto the world stage as a powerful nation, Pharaoh decided that the Hebrew population had to be controlled. And he tried to accomplish this by both keeping their numbers from growing any further and by enslaving them for the purposes of them becoming the nation's construction workers. So now let's go and read Exodus 2. Exodus chapter 2. A man from the family of Levi took a woman also descended from Levi as his wife, and when she conceived and had a son, upon seeing what a fine child he was, she hid him for three months. When she could no longer hide him, she took a papyrus basket, coated it with clay and tar, put the child in it, and placed it among the reeds on the river bank. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Well, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the river while her maids and attendants walked alongside the riverside. And spotting the basket among the reeds, she sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it, looked inside, and there in front of her was a crying baby boy. Moved with pity, she said, this must be one of the Hebrews' children. Now at this point, his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Would you like me to go and find you one of the Hebrew women to nurse that baby for you? And Pharaoh's daughter answered, Yes, go. So the girl went and called the baby's own mother. And Pharaoh's daughter told her, Take this child away and nurse it for me, and I'll pay you for doing it. So the woman took the child and nursed it. Then when the child had grown some, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she began to raise him as her son. She called him Moshe, Pull out, me explaining because I pulled him out of the water. One day, when Moshe was a grown man, he went out to visit his kinsmen and he watched them struggling at this forced labor. And he saw an Egyptian strike a Hebrew, one of his kinsmen. He looked this way and that. And when he saw that no one was around, he killed that Egyptian and hid his body in the sand. The next day, He went out, and he saw two Hebrew men fighting with each other, and to the one in the wrong, he said, Why are you hitting your companion? And he retorted, Who appointed you ruler and judge over us? You intend to kill me the way you killed that Egyptian? Moshe became frightened. Clearly, he thought the matter has become known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he tried to have Moses put to death, but Moses fled from Pharaoh to go live in the land of Midian. One day, as he was sitting by a well, the seven daughters of the priest of Midian came to draw water. They had filled the troughs to water their father's sheep when the shepherds came and tried to drive them away. But Moses got up and defended them. Then he watered the sheep. And when they came to Reuel, their father, he said, How come you're back so soon today? And they answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. More than that, he drew water for us and watered the sheep. He asked his daughters, where is he? Why did you leave the man there? Invite him to have something to eat with us. And Moses was glad to stay on with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Sipporah in marriage. She gave birth to a son, and he named him Gershom, which means foreigner there. For he said, I have been a foreigner in a foreign land. Sometime during those many years, the king of Egypt died, But the people of Israel still groaned under the yoke of slavery, and they cried out. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. And God saw the people of Israel, and God acknowledged them. We take some big leaps in time, don't we? A lot is left out. I pointed out last week that, give or take a little bit, between the last few words of Genesis and the first few words of Exodus, almost 350 years pass. Now, what's very interesting is that's almost exactly the amount of time that passes between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New, All right, to give you some time of idea. We a great deal is made out of what's called the silent period, that is, between the testament or the intertestamental period. But here in the Torah, that passes without notice simply by turning a page from Genesis to Exodus. Well, verse 1 in Exodus chapter 2 gives us some important information. And it is that a man from the house of Levi married a woman from the same house. In other words, both the husband and the wife were of the same tribe, Levi. Now don't get too too concerned about this. In general, by this time, there were probably around 100,000 Levites living in Egypt. So the gene pool was pretty large. That said, we're soon going to find out that Moses' parents were apparently pretty closely related now, for now, the future parents of Moses are anonymous. All right. Later, we're going to find out that his mother's name was Yehohabed, all right, and his father's was Amram. Now, before Moses was born, his parents had produced at least two other children that we're aware of, Miriam and Aaron. Now, keep in your minds throughout the remainder of our study of Torah that Moses was of the tribe of Levi, he was a Levite. Okay. It's going to help explain much of what happens concerning Moses. And by the way, as of this moment, the Bible has not yet indicated that Levi is going to be a tribe divided away and set apart for God, a tribe of priests. So at this moment, by any way the Israelites would have viewed themselves, they consisted of 13 tribes of Israel because Joseph had received the double portion by having his two sons now included as full-fledged Israelite tribes. Now just a reminder that when we speak of the 12 tribes of Israel it's a rather sloppy statement okay? because the number of tribes and who was included among that number varied over the hundreds and hundreds of years. So we see that Moses is born under Pharaoh's decree of instant death to all Hebrew male newborns, and that his parents had been able in some way to hide him for about three months, but then it seemed them impossible to keep his existence secret any further. Okay? Now, did they think that they needed to go to some extraordinary measure to try and save Young Moses, because they somehow knew that this infant one day would become the deliverer of Israel. There's no indication of that at all. Okay, when they put Moses into that waterproof basket and set it into the Nile, it was with a faith that had not come about because of special revelation that we're aware of. It was, it was but simple, daily trust in the Lord. That this child's fate, no matter what it be, death or life, was in his holy hands now hidden within the Hebrew language of the ori- original text are several ironies and connections between the circumstances surrounding Moses' birth and some earlier benchmark biblical events now naturally the early Hebrew sages and rabbis didn't miss these connections Okay, the first is that in verse 2 It says that Moses' mother saw, depending on your version, how beautiful or how fine he was. And so she hid him for three months. Now, actually, what the original Hebrew says was that she saw how tov Moses was. Tov, as anyone who knows the slightest Hebrew, means good. Saying beautiful isn't necessarily wrong or fine, but it kind of masks the association that starts to be made between Moses and some of these earlier biblical acts of God. Remember in Genesis 1 that after each part of the creation effort, God pronounced it to be what? Good. Tov. God said, and it was tov. That's what the Hebrew says. All right, And right off, It's being made clear that Moses' very birth was under divine influence and was going to have great purpose. Now, Moses' mother built a floating cradle out of the same exact material that the typical Nile river boats were made of in that day. Papyrus reed. And she seals it with a natural tar, again the same thing that the Nile river boats were waterproofed with. And then she plays as little, little Moses in it. Now, some Bibles call this little lifeboat a basket. Most do. The Hebrew word used here is teva, T-E-V-A-A, teva. And it is used in only two contexts in the Bible. Okay? The first refers to the enormous vessel that Noah built. And the second is this tiny one here. In Exodus, that's the only two ways that word is used in all the Bible. It was an ark. Okay. Now the correct English translation, of course, of Tavah is ark, basket, or any other word. Again, starts to miss these connections that are made for us between Noah's ark and Moses' ark. Now notice the parallel purposes, even of these two arcs. Okay. In Genesis, mankind was to be done in by a worldwide flood of water and God saw to it that Noah and his family would be the saviors of mankind all right, by placing them safely in a teva to ride atop the floodwaters. In Egypt, all the male babies were to be done in by being drowned in the river. Right. But Nile saw to it that Moses would be the deliverer of Israel by placing him in a teva to ride atop the waters of the Nile. No allegory here. Okay, rather a pattern and a type is set down by God. Here we have God using water and an ark as the main elements of the early types of salvation. The first kind used for saving mankind in general, the second kind for saving the Hebrews. Now, a good question at this point might be, but yeah, but what about this other ark that's shortly going to become prominent in Exodus, the Ark of the Covenant? Shouldn't that be connected to this Ark of Moses and Noah? No. No. Because that would be allegory, although a very nice story. Okay, first of all, the Hebrew word used for ark in the Ark of the Covenant is aron. Aron. And it means a chest. It means a place to store something valuable. Now interestingly, aron is used in only one other way. And by the way, this aron is not the same exact Spelling as Aaron, alright, who will soon be the high priest, Moses' brother. Aaron, Aaron is only used in, in, in one other way and at only one other time in all the Bible. And it's used to mean coffin. And it refers only to when Joseph died and was embalmed and put into an Aaron, a coffin. Somehow I think we're supposed to see something symbolic here. That the same exact term, Arone, is used to describe both the container in which this savior-like man, Joseph, was laid to rest, as well as the container built specially to hold the original stone tablets written on by the finger of God, those things we call the Ten Commandments. Now frankly, I'm not sure if the symbolism has something to do with perhaps the immense value of Joseph to God being equated with the immense value of the Ten Commandments or if it symbolizes something entirely of a prophetic nature, something that will become apparent in a time still future. It is interesting to note that in Revelation at about the same time the Ark of the Covenant is rediscovered and placed into the new temple, the tribe of Joseph suddenly reappears. They're almost simultaneous events. Well, we'll know in time, won't we? No doubt, the location where that little Teva, that little ark that held the infant Moses, was deposited among those tall reeds along the bank of the Nile, was carefully chosen so that the Egyptian princess who bathed regularly at that same spot would likely discover it. And upon finding and inspecting that little vessel and discovering the crying infant within, the princess's womanly instincts took over. And she determined she was going to save this baby from an otherwise certain fate. Now, notice that she knew instantly this was a Hebrew child. Alright, but it made absolutely no difference to her, apparently. Now we have quite an irony building here, don't we? Okay, the daughter of the very man who ordered that these Hebrew male babies were to be destroyed is the one to save this Hebrew. Alright, who had been selected by God to liberate Israel. Even more, as it turns out, Israel's Savior was going to be raised in the Pharaoh's own house at his expense. Now Miriam, Moses' older sister, who had watched this scene unfold, rushed to the Pharaoh's daughter to offer her a Hebrew woman to be a wet nurse for the baby. And the princess did the only practical thing she could have done. She accepted. Now, in another irony But only God could have worked out. The infant Moses is returned to his own mother, carried in the arms of his own sister, and now mom's paid by the princess to do nothing more than suckle and raise this child who was hers in the first place. And the money to pay this Hebrew mother is coming from the treasury of the Pharaoh. I mean, I just love the way the Lord works. Now, verse 10 says that the child grew and then was returned to the princess as now her child. And this had to be a pretty bittersweet moment for Yehochabed, because she was giving up her child. But with her, his lot would have been nothing but slavery. With the princess, it was going to be a life of royalty. Now, the Bible doesn't give us an exact age. But in general, it is thought that in those days an infant was nursed until at least three years of age, and probably five. This is uh, more realistic. And there's ample proof it was could have been even significantly more. All right? In fact, in tribal societies today, the average age of weaning is between five and seven. Okay, So Moses was in the childhood development stage, probably of about a kindergartner, when he went to the royal palace to live. And this means he knew his family well, and undoubtedly had a fair grasp of his native Hebrew language by the time he was returned to the princess. And being taken from his family and given to the princess must have been a pretty traumatic event for little Moses. I mean, he would have become bonded not only with his mother, but also to the Hebrew way of life. One can only imagine the psychological tension that was caused as this young child was torn from a life now fully imprinted on his soul and taken into a new one that was altogether different, really almost in direct opposition to the one he'd come from. It was going to eventually... Overflow into frustration and then rage. Now as it turns out, Moses received his name after his return to the princess. And that name at, uh, was not at first a Hebrew name, but Egyptian. Now as happens in mixed populations, okay, the Egyptian name Mose, M-O-S-E, was eventually co-opted by the Hebrews, and made part of their Hebrew vocabulary. In Hebrew, Moshe means drawn out. However, in Egyptian, Moshe is a very common word, but with a different meaning. Mose simply means child or son. So while in English we say Moses, in Hebrew the word is Moshe, and in Egyptian it's mose. Okay. Therefore, we're going to see many pharaohs' names incorporating that same word, that same name, Mose, along with the long-held ancient world tradition of adding a god's name um, of a son as a form of gratitude to one god or another. When we look at the reigns of various Egyptian pharaohs, we're going to see ones like Ra. Mose, which is more ty- typically known to us as Ramesses. Okay, right? meaning son of the god Ra. Or Dot Mose, meaning son of the god Dot, which we often see, ri- see written as Tut Mose, or as we know him better, King Tut. Right? or Ta Mose, meaning son of the god Ta, and so on and so forth. Well, between verses 10 and 11, as happens a lot in Scripture, we take the suddenly forward in time, in this case about 35 years. And nothing is said about Moses' upbringing, but it's fairly easy to extrapolate from the vast amounts of Egyptian records that have been discovered concerning royal life. And while he would have been given all the finest in education and military training, the best food and drink and made familiar with royal court protocol, it would have been given to him grudgingly. Because unlike for Charlton Heston, (laughs) there was no way whatsoever for Moses to have his Hebrew beginnings kept secret. The Egyptians knew that he was a lowly Hebrew just by looking at him. And more importantly, he knew he was a Hebrew. And just as critical the general Israelite population knew who Moses was and to them regardless of his Hebrew blood he was now an Egyptian a hated Egyptian okay Moses would not have been fully welcomed in either camp okay rejected by Israelite and Egyptian alike trapped frustrated Moses finally strikes out in violence and one day he sees what must have been and altogether familiar sight, an Egyptian striking a Hebrew slave. So what's new? Well, this is an event that Moses had witnessed certainly hundreds of times. But this time, he erupts. And he takes matters into his own hand, and it says he kills the Egyptian and he buries him. A little time later, he spots two Hebrews quarreling, and he again decides to take matters into his own hands as he tries to separate them and play a referee. The aggressor of the two turns to Moses and asks him what business uh, is it of his to interfere with this little tussle, and oh, by the way, are you going to kill me too like you did that Egyptian? Oh, boy. Moses blanched. His murderous act had witnesses, and it was only a matter of time Before the Egyptian authorities found out murder of an Egyptian by anyone, Egyptian or foreigner, carried with it a death sentence. And Moses knew he had no choice but to run and run he did. Across the Egyptian border frontier of Goshen into and across the Sinai, then across the Gulf of Aqaba and on into the land of Midian which is on the Arabian Peninsula. Why Indian? Because they had no political ties to Egypt. Okay. The Sinai was primarily Egyptian-controlled. Okay. They had built military outposts all along the normal trade routes that uh, went through the Sinai. And they had established treaties were the few nations that bordered the Sinai area. Moses' choices of refuge were really pretty limited. Well, what a seemingly lonely, dreadful place Moses' life had come to, pursued by the Pharaoh, rejected by the Hebrews. His royal palace life exchanged for that of a desert dweller, a fugitive desert dweller. Moses would have a wilderness experience long before the one that he would lead Israel to have. And like his forefathers, Moses divided away and separated from his own people, Moses would now be molded and prepared by the divine unseen hand of God in a foreign land on God's timetable. Well, the inhabitants of his new home, Midian, were the descendants ...of Abraham's concubine wife, Keturah. So Moses and the Midianites were relatives. And as we'll run into the Midianites at several points in the Bible... ...let me briefly explain that the Midianites were not actually a nation of people. They were a confederation of five tribes... Right. they lived not in a sovereign state of a place called Midian um, but rather it was just a region that went by that name it was just a just identified the general whereabouts of those five tribes and therefore all of the five tribes were on one hand called Midianites meaning they were all from this region right but on the other hand each of the tribes would have had their own unique tribal name, some of which will actually stumble across pretty soon in the Bible, and others that appear to have been lost to antiquity. So, like so many places and people in the word, we're going to get different names for the same person or place, which makes following it all a little bit confusing. Well, upon arrival in Midian, Moses immediately has an encounter at a water well with these midianites. And if we watch closely in the Bible, many meetings of importance particularly between men and women happen at desert water wells. Okay? The number of places it was considered proper and acceptable for a woman to be seen apart from her husband or her father or even alone with other women were very few. All right? A well was one of those places where it was permissible. And here at this well in Midian, some women shepherds show up and begin to draw water for their sheep, only to have some local bullies show up and drive the women's sheep away, presumably water their own flocks. Moses witnesses this altercation and driven by his underlying anger and a crusader mentality that we've seen develop, okay, he uh, utilizes those fighting skills. That he would have learned as just a standard part of his royal training in the palace of the pharaoh, and he shoes the men away. And impressed by the skill and courage of this Egyptian, as they call Moses, Moses suddenly finds himself with seven girlfriends who promptly take him home to daddy. (laughs) Now, who would they think, or rather why would they think, this Semitic man... Moses was an Egyptian. Well, it would have been his lack of a beard, number one, and and, and a, a shaven face characterized Egyptians, but a beard was required of a Hebrew male, and of course his dress. Now, Daddy is introduced as a fellow named Reuel. He'll also later possibly be called Yitro. Or Jethro. Now, Reuel, this priest of Midian, as the Bible calls him, has spawned a lot of discussion among Bible scholars as to just who he was, all right, and what role he might have played in Moses' life. But first, understand that the land of Midian held a lot of Midianites. Okay, Reuel is called the priest of Midian. Okay we're going to see the same kind of designation the priest in the bible when it means to indicate the high priest of israel right, so reuel was probably the chief priest or the high priest for the midianites now the name reuel is thought to mean friend of el the god el All right el being the name is that 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 god is called before he announced his actual name. All right. So in one form or another, Raoel knew the true God, the one generally known in the region as just El. All right. Now, remembering that it was Moses himself that wrote down Exodus all right, and much of some of the other books of Torah, it must have seemed unimportant to him to give much in the way of detail about Raoel or his own life in Midian, because about all we know for sure is that Reuel invited Moses to live with the family, gave Moses his daughter Zipporah for a wife, and then uh, then Zipporah gave Moses two children. The first one named Gershom. Right. Now Zipporah is actually a traditional Bedouin name to this day. All right? It means bird. All right? Now. As we're soon going to find out, though, bird hardly fits the poor's demeanor. Tiger, Tasmanian devil, all right, something like that. But bird, no. All right, we'll say that for another list. Yeah, vulture maybe. Now, interestingly, take note of the name of Moses' first child, Ger Shom. Back. When we studied what the Hebrews meant by the term foreigner or stranger, we learned that the Hebrew word was ger. So this child of Moses named ger, shom, literally means a stranger there, a foreigner there. On verse 23, we're informed that during Moses' long stay in Midian, the pharaoh that was in power when Moses had fled had died. But back in Egypt, if the Israelites who had lived so many years under the thumb of that Pharaoh, who seemed to hate them so much, had any thoughts that perhaps this new Pharaoh would be a little more favorable towards them, it was wiped out immediately. Okay, But now, as the time was right, the cake that was Israel was ready to be pulled from the oven. Because the groan of the Israelites had reached the ear of God. And it says that God remembered Israel. Now the Hebrew word used here for remember is zakar. Z-A-K-A-R, zakar. And zakar doesn't mean remember like we think of it today. In our era, remember is nothing but an act of our minds calling up something from memory. Okay? It's, it, it's no more than a passive thought process. Okay? But the Hebrew zakar is a much more active term. It adds the element of involvement. Okay? So while we think of the word remember as kind of a an aha, intellectual exercise, that may or may not eventually lead to some kind of action on our part. In Hebrew, zakar is an action word that means paying very close attention to someone and being involved in whatever the outcome is. all works together. And what's key to catch is that God's action and reaction was going to revolve around the covenant that he had made to Abraham, then transferred that covenant to Isaac, and then transferred that covenant yet again to Jacob, called Israel. And that covenant was that Abraham's descendants, in time refined to mean Jacob and his sons and all their descendants, would be given a land of their own, that El Shaddai, would be their God and that God would protect them and consider them his very own set-apart people and that through this, eventually, the entire world would be blessed. Well, the process that had begun more than a half a millennia earlier and that had seemed absolutely dormant for nearly 400 years as Israel languished away in Egypt is about to burst into visible action. Let's watch it begin as we move into Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the sheep of Yitro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, And leading the flock to the far side of the desert, he came to the mountain of God to Horeb. And the angel of Adonai appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. And he looked and saw that all of the bush was flaming with fire, yet the bush had not was not being burned up. And Moses said, I'm going to go over and see this amazing sight and find out why that bush isn't being burned up. And when I saw that he had gone over to see, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he answered, here I am. He said, don't come any closer. Take your sandals off your feet because the place where you're standing is holy ground. I am the God of your father. He continued, the God of Abraham, the God of Yitzhak, the God of Yaakov. Moses covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. And Adonai said, I have seen how my people are being oppressed in Egypt and heard their cry for release from their slave masters because I know their pain. I have come down to rescue them from the Egyptians and to bring them out of that country to a good and spacious land, a land with flowing with milk and honey, the place of the Canani, the Hittite, the Emori, the the Hevi, and the Avusi. Yes, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I have seen how terribly the Egyptians oppress them. Therefore, now come, I will send you to Pharaoh so that you can lead my people, the descendants of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses said to God, who am I, that I should go to Pharaoh and lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? He replied, I will surely be with you. Your sign that I have sent you will be that when you have led the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Now Moses said to God, look, when I appear before the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you. And they say, what's his name? What am I to tell them? And God said to Moses, ehe Asher, ehe. I am, I will be, or, I am what I am. Or, or, depending on alternate translations, I will be what I will be. And he added, here's what you're to say to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God said further to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. yud Hey vav Hey. the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered generation after generation. Go, gather the leaders of Israel together and say to them, Adonai, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Yitzhak, and Jacob has appeared to me and said, I have been paying close attention to you and have seen what is being done to you in Egypt. And I have said that I will lead you up out of the misery of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite, Hiti, Amorite, Prizi, Hivai, and Yavusi, to a land flowing with milk and honey. They will heed what you say. Then you will come, you and the leaders of Israel before the king of Egypt, and you will tell him, Adonai, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Now please. Let us go on three days' journey into the desert so that we can sacrifice to Adonai our God. I know that the king of Egypt will not let you leave unless he's forced to do so. But I will reach out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders that I will do there. After that, he will let you go. Moreover, I will make the Egyptians so well disposed towards this people that when you go, you won't go empty-handed, Rather, all the women will ask their neighbors and house guests for silver and gold jewelry and clothing with which you will dress your own sons and daughters. In this way, you will plunder the Egyptians. Now, let me warn you, there are going to be an Exodus 3 for a while. This chapter is just brimming with things that we need to know and understand as preparation for what comes later. Verse 1 tells us that Moses had settled in to the life of a shepherd. And since there's no indication that Moses ever had any training in being a shepherd before he fled to Midian, one has to assume that he received a lot of on-the-job training all right, from his wife and her sisters over a substantial period of time after he arrived in Midian. Now, interestingly... Moses apparently did not own animals of his own. Okay, These were his father-in-law's sheep that he was tending. Unlike the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it doesn't appear that Moses became prosperous. So he moves the flock now to another pasture at a place identified as Mount Horeb. Now, it's kind of important to ascertain the best we can, just where this flock was moved to. Because it was the location, it was this location where Moses had the burning bush experience and then of course later he would receive the Torah. The same place. Okay. In other words, wherever it was that he moved those sheep to was where the mountain of God was located. But it's also important to understand why he moved the flocks. It was to find fresh pasture lands. Flocks weren't moved just because the shepherd got itchy feet. Nor were they moved any further than absolutely necessary. They were moved as short a distance as possible to known and established places. Now let me once again explain for you Just where Midian is, it's on the Arabian Peninsula. This is called the Gulf of Aqaba, over here. This today we call the Gulf of Suez, which opens up into the Red Sea, which is down here. This would have been known, both of these long fingers here would have simply been called then the Red Sea. Just all part of the Red Sea. Now, I did some research on the location of ancient Midian, and went back and tried to find some the the oldest archives I could find. And not a textbook, not a map, not a reference book from any source could I find anything that would put any part of the Midian region anywhere except on the Arabian Peninsula. Now, some have tried, recently, to locate a rather mythical part of western Midian into the eastern part of the Sinai Peninsula. But there's absolutely nothing, historically, to indicate that. And it flies in the face of logic and simple geography. In fact, Sinai, at almost all times, just like it is for the most part today, was Egyptian territory okay. which is why Moses fled across Goshen through the Sinai to get to Midian. Why did he just stop in the Sinai? Right. He was not about to flee Pharaoh and remain in Egyptian territory where there were Egyptian military outposts because he could be easily apprehended. okay? many archaeological finds have confirmed the unique Midianite culture and everything of Midianite origin ever found has been found only on the Arabian Peninsula. There's not one shred of evidence that the Midianites ever inhabited the Sinai. Now without intent on trashing anybody, it's pretty obvious from my study that the people who argue that Midian spilled over into the Sinai Peninsula. I have an agenda, and it's to prove that it was in the Sinai where Moses drove his sheep. Okay, and this is for no other reason than to try and establish the Christian Mount Sinai tradition as reality. And as we're soon going to see, the Bible itself does not confirm. The standard traditional Christian site of Mount Sinai, either. Okay, but it gets all the more unlikely that Moses drove his sheep to a mountain near the tip, all right, of the Sinai Peninsula, because it would have required him to drive his sheep all the way up and around the top of the Gulf of Aqaba, and then all the way down to here, all right the eastern shore. We're talking around something between 125 and 140 miles. He would have had to drive those sheep to get to the traditional site of Mount Sinai. Now, I don't know that much about sheep, but they got little legs. (laughs) At least the last time I ate one it was little. This is barren desert. There's nothing here. All right. And the idea that Moses would have taken his flocks through barren desert with little or no pasture and even fewer available watering holes is unimaginable. No shepherd in his right mind is going to try to drive those sheep, which never would have made it, all right, through 125 miles of parched land just to move them to a new pasture. Okay. No, wrote, Moses remained on the Arabian Peninsula and drove them. It says to the far side, or another word that's often used is behind the western, uh, the desert wilderness of Midian, just as the Bible says. Now, I don't know what your Bibles say, but a lot of them say that uh, Moses drove the sheep west. Okay, others say only behind or far side or some other undefined general direction. Well, the only way to come up with west is if somebody works backwards. That is, if you begin with the idea that Mount Horeb is on Mount Sinai, or rather is is on the Sinai Peninsula, then from where Moses started out, I guess he had to go west. Right? The problem is that of the 69 times the word west is used in the Old Testament, 68 of those times the original Hebrew word is yom. Y-A-M, yom. Yam. yam is the traditional Hebrew word to indicate the direction west. The 69th time that some of the versions use west is right here in Exodus. And guess what? the word yam is not used. Instead, the word is achar, A-C-H-A-R. And of the 74 times that achar is used in the Old Testament, 73 times it's translated as behind or at the rear. Only here in Exodus have some translators chosen to make a car become west. You get the picture? West has no business being there. Okay. It's a gross mistranslation. Right? All we know about the direction Moses took the flocks was, was somewhere described as behind the desert wilderness, wherever that is, right? which could have been in just about any direction. But in verse 2, we do see that wherever it was they went, they went to where there were mountains that rimmed the desert wilderness. Right? And it would not have been very far 10 miles, 20 miles, perhaps. Okay, We'll get back into this at a later day after the Israelites are released from Egypt. But for now, just know that the place where Moses had the burning bush experience that we just read about in Exodus 3 was in Midian, on the east side of the Gulf of Aqaba, on the Arabian Peninsula, not in the Sinai Desert. Okay? And that'll do it for tonight.